with that, we're going to read our passage. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this great um, blessing, this freedom that we have, that we can worship you here uh, openly without fear of any sort of um, persecution. Lord, we ask that as we um, continue your study, our study through your word, uh, Lord, that you would guide us. We ask for uh, help and clarity of uh, today's passage, which is a, a difficult one. I pray that you would help us to, um, to see uh, the true emphasis here, that you would help us to understand what this passage is saying. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us, that we would be able to um, clear clear our minds of distractions, worries, concerns, and that we would just allow you to speak to us through your word. Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Peter. I thank you for his life that has been placed on display for us in many ways, his failures, his, um, his times of succeeding by human standards. I just thank you, Lord, for how you use this man. Father, we pray that you would, um, Lord, that you would just continue to encourage us and help us to draw closer to you uh, through the studying of your word now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting, in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers, had been subjected to him. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting passage. I don't know if you guys were listening. There's some stuff that, that needs to be dealt with, to, to be explained. I, um, my sort of routine in preparing for Sundays is often I read a few weeks out. I read Peter multiple times. I sort of have on the radar what's what's coming down the, the pipeline. And normally Monday mornings, I kind of go through my ritual of, you know, drinking seven cups of coffee. No, I only drink a couple. I only drink five. Don't worry. No, I don't, not really. Um, so I drink my coffee. I fire up the computer. I get the Bible software going. And as it sort of situates, it's um, a, a, a number of commentaries, resources begin to start popping up. And, and this week, as it popped up on Monday morning, I caught a glimpse of Martin Luther's commentary on this section, and it was quite concerning. He said this, a wonderful text this is, and more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. <laughs> I said, thank you, my dear brother, Martin Luther, for encouraging me this morning. I'll take it as a challenge to see if I can sort through. Um, preaching expositorily, where we at this church kind of cover a book at the time, uh, we don't, I don't have the liberty to skip over passages um, and so we, we press on. And I studied. I, I feel that I, um, I feel that I have a grasp on this. But I get concerned when I feel I have a grasp on something. And all the great minds in theological history say this is a terribly confu confusing passage. I uh, this week I text Ben and say, Hey Ben, what do you think about this passage? At like ten o'clock at night, and he's like, You're texting me at ten o'clock at night to ask what I think about this passage. I'm like, man, I just need some assurance. I need some, 
you know, an attaboy, know I'm on the right track. Well, we'll see how it goes. There's so much that I could say. Um, I could really confuse you all. My, my aim is to present this, and as, as I've studied, to, to present really the, the position I think is the clearest and most balanced and allows the text to speak for itself. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's simple because we're talking in the spiritual realm about things that just are a little bit out of our, our ordinary life. Um, this passage brought a flood of memories going through it. This, uh, in some translations here uh, in the New American Standard, it says that he went and made a proclamation to the spirits now uh, in prison. Some translations refer to it that he, he descended into hell. And reading this, it brought back a flood of my early childhood memories of going to church. In the United States, there are many Christians who grew up in the Catholic Church. I know that there are a number in our midst who did. Um, I don't think it's just the Catholic Church. I think that there's a, a number of liturgical churches, meaning that they go through sort of a routine and, and reciting back and forth. As a child, that when I... Well, when I read this passage, I think back to my childhood, and one of the things that would happen in the order of service during the Catholic Mass was you would recite the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. It, it, was, it, it was penned in AD 400 or so um, by believers to sort of... Uh, doctrines always come out of when, when, when heresy surfaces, and they... They write, what does the Bible say? And out of defending doctrine, the Apostles' Creed was born. You'd have to ask Ben for more of a historical background than myself. That's not my... uh... But the Apostles' Creed is really well known. And for those of you that were raised in the Catholic Church or a liturgical church that recited this, as I read the Apostles' Creed to you, you could probably start saying it along with me. I'm not asking you to do that, but this is just... It just sort of comes out. And so the Apostles' Creed, I knew that it was always towards the end of the service, so I started to get optimistic. We would begin to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, holy, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of, this, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's beautiful. So much great doctrine in this passage. I wish somebody would have explained it to me early on. I, uh, as a kid, I remember that there were, there was always one part that seemed to be always explained to me from within my family. Not that I was asking questions. Um, I think it had more to do with that. I grew up in the, the American Catholic church and maybe my dad or my parents had affiliations that they were defending this part of it. I don't know. Um, that part was the, I believe in the, the Holy Catholic Church. It just didn't even bother me. I mean, I was Catholic. I was Roman Catholic. So I was quick to just assume, like, of course I believe it. I'm sitting in the Catholic Church. I am here. But it was always explained to me that, no, Catholic Church doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. It's an old word that means universal, general. It's referring to the body of Christ. So you don't have to cringe as I read that. The other part that would, as I would say, it would sort of, bother me, but in my adolescent gunner, my deeper thoughts didn't last that long. So I would have the thought and I'd move on until I come to Peter. And that passage was he descended into hell. Like what in the world is that all about? And so in looking at this passage, there's five verses, the verse 18 and verse 22, very clear, very, there's no question what is being said there. And then there's these three verses in the middle that sort of are like, what is he talking about? I do believe that these are important in order to understand how they are significant. 
we have to look at context. I feel like every week in Peter, I'm having to, to go back. Context, context, context. Um, in the original writings, there was no such thing as punctuation. There were no chapters and verses. It was you started writing and you basically wrote until you ended. I am thankful for those that are gifted in language that have the ability to, to look at the big picture, to add chapter verses, sort of break up thoughts and sort of explain things. We come to this today and we come to verse 22. It's the end of chapter three. We think the whole thought is over and we start something new in chapter four. That's how books work. With the case of the scriptures, the chapter and verses are there for our convenience, not necessarily to show us the natural breaks. The section of today's scripture, verses 18 through 22, really is a part of a greater paragraph that starts probably back in verse 13 of chapter 3 and ends, depending on who you talk to, around verse 6 of chapter 4. And so as we look at this, it's important, how did we get to where we are. And so we enter from verse 17. I'd have you just look at the previous verse. It says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. The heart, the message, what we've been looking at for the last few weeks is how does the Christian respond to unjust suffering, suffering for righteousness sake, Suffering happens for humans of all. I mean, if we're if you're human, whether you're believer or non-believer, we all suffer the same in some regards that we all face death. We all get old. We all face cancer, various diseases. We live in a fallen world. And so therefore, whether you're believer or unbeliever, things are going to happen. That's suffering. That's just that's a result of the curse that we're all under. That is not what Peter's referring to. He's referring to you living righteously, going back. I, I forget where it was, but earlier, verse 11 of chapter 3, he talks about turning from evil and doing good as you walk with God. And so as we walk in righteousness, at times the world will push back or persecute you because you have declared that you follow after Christ. We see this in various parts of the world. Uh, <coughs> the, middle, <coughs> the Middle East comes to mind. The whole situation with ISIS and the Christians in northern Iraq. <clears throat> this Friday, there were, we watched a movie, uh, God is Not Dead, and there was a scene when I just started bawling. I mean, I don't want to say embarrassing, but, but it's, I'm trying to watch the movie. And especially when you start crying in movies, it's like, come on, like I don't. So there's a scene and it was emotional and I felt a little drop welling. So I thought I would do this number, you know, and when I did that, it like broke the floodgates. It's like five more drops. And I'm like, oh man, oh man, oh man. I don't want people to see me. You know, like I'm like, and the scene that I got, it just broke me loose. Like, I, I, it was overwhelming. The movie follows a couple different college kids, and there's one kid who is a, a, a Muslim girl who raised in a Muslim family. Well, she's not Muslim, but she was raised in, she's a Middle Eastern girl, I should say, raised in a Muslim family. And you see that she is actually, she's become a Christian, and on her iPod or iPhone, she's listening to sermons. Her little brother finds out and basically sells her out. And then the scene happens where the dad walks in and he basically rips it from her and he basically hits her across the face. She goes to the ground and the dad basically says, you need to recant Christ. This is, we are, this is not who we are. And the girl said, no, dad, I'm a Christian and I cannot. And he drags her out of the house and kicks her out to the street. And I'm like bawling watching all of this because it's beautiful. I mean, a beautiful picture of a sister in Christ. Now, I know it's a movie, but movies are real, right? You know, like you kind of like, that's what makes it so good. You like identify. So here's like my sister in Christ who's standing for Christ 
regardless of what she's going to have to endure. And she's, and I am weeping like a baby. That's suffering for righteousness. And so this, this is unjust suffering for righteousness sake, because if God wills it for you, it's better that way. We're not talking about you for me, like being a knucklehead. Like you can be foolish. You can be immature. You can do all sorts of things that cause persecution, suffering, anguish in your life. But that's because of your own doing. That's not the kind of suffering. We're talking about suffering for righteousness sake. So from suffering unjustly for righteousness, we enter into the passage. We come down to chapter four, verse one, how this passage sort of departs is therefore, whenever we see a therefore, we have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Often it refers to the preceding verse or verses or context. In this case, it's the preceding context, everything that we've been looking at. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, which I will get into this next week. But where our passage from today sort of transitions out of, it points to Jesus and says, therefore, since Christ suffered unjustly, he's our Lord. We follow him. We take our hope and our peace and follow it after him. So basically because he suffered, get on board and get on mission with him, regardless of what suffering you find yourselves in. I, I wrestle normally we, well, we are today. We're going to go verse by verse, just like we always do. I thought, well, maybe to make this clear, I'll take the, the hard stuff first and I'll back up. So I'm just going to take it verse by verse. We're going to ease into this. And the very first verse that we look at is verse 18. Coming out of it's for it's better. If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So if you're suffering unjustly, my reaction is this just isn't fair. And I love that the Bible always points us to Jesus as the standard. You want to talk about fairness? Let's talk about Jesus <laughs> and what he went through on the cross. Suddenly, when we look at what he went through in his suffering, suddenly it sort of puts our sufferings into perspective. And I love this verse. For Christ also died. This word died, I... Uh, in summarizing, it's funny reading commentaries. It's like, what are they saying? But, but this word isn't a word that necessarily just means that, okay, he went from being alive to dead, the point where they called Jesus dead. This word died could refers to sort of the whole process of suffering in his death. From the moment he was arrested and drug through the court, every beating, everything he went through, this whole process of suffering, ultimately leading to his death. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. You could put your name there. It would be totally fair for each one of us to read this. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for Gunner, insert your name. None of us are justified. All of us, apart from Christ, stand condemned. This is a once and for all. So that the purpose of his death, why did he die for sins for all, the just for the unjust? So that he might bring us to God. Um, this bringing us to God, I, 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 it's funny how this, my background is I was raised Catholic. If you asked me growing up, if I was a Christian, I would say yes. If you raised, what's your background? I'd say Catholic. Um, I did not make the big move away from Catholicism until boot camp. And it wasn't even malicious. It was I was just going to go through boot camp, going to the Catholic mass and go to the Protestant service. 
But that second week, they, they made me declare. And so then I declared that I would go to the Protestant service, mainly because it started later. It was, there was lively music. It was just less boring than the Catholic Church. was was when push came to shove. But then after a few weeks in, of going to the Protestant service, something adjusted in my heart. And I, and I can't even, I don't know what it was, but I, I reached this sort of line of demarcation where I requested, it was huge because my dog tags on religion, all dog tags, the bottom row says, what religion? Mine said RCC, Roman Catholic Church. And I basically asked if uh, it's never a good thing to go to a drill instructor first off. And especially when you're a young kid and your request is that you want to have basically three letters changed on your dog tags. They are less than receptive. So I, I have a feeling it cost me a little something to do this, but I basically midway through boot camp, I went to the instructor. I said, is there any way I can get my dog tags changed so that it says Christian on the bottom? And I wasn't necessarily leaving the Catholic church, but I, I was like, Christian. And so uh, if I was to walk into a Catholic church today, I would have two memories that would surface. I would have war memories and I'd have flashbacks of being just terribly bored as a kid. I am. I I don't speak harshly against the Catholic church. So all my stories that kind of talk about the Catholic church, I'm saying this from my, it was how I came to Christ. This is part of my journey. Not to offend, not to speak harshly to our Christians uh, or our Catholic uh, friends who we love. But, but growing up in the Catholic Church, from the time I took First Communion, I had to sit through a series of classes. I was probably f- first grade-ish, I think is the age. And they described to me the significance of taking communion. They talked about everything, even as an adult, having gone through seminary, studying it. I still can't quite explain it to you. But what I was told is that every day for communion, that the the Eucharist, the, the wafer, it would literally turn into, after the priest did his thing, it would literally turn into the body and blood of Christ, as if, the cross was still happening, that the suffering was still going on, that Christ was still paying for my sins. And so I remember as a young lad going to church, making it from week to week, with the idea I'd done so much during the week, and then Sundays going to Mass was my time to sort of pay back God, to stay, to earn grace, and that taking... The communion was sort of a way for me to get back into good graces with God. So much so that as a young man, I remember going once to the Catholic mass and the priest handed me like five wafers. And he said, you need extra grace because I can tell you're trouble. <laughs> and I said, okay. so I went back to the row whacking on like eating my wafers. And uh, that's like a big deal though, because Catholic priests take, don't take it seriously. Like they don't take it lightly. And so I think the guy really thought I was in trouble. So I don't, like, I, I don't know. And then as I left the Catholic church and I ended up in Protestant church, I ended up in a Protestant church where every single Sunday the gospel was presented and there was an, a, an altar call that, where he would lead people to Christ, pray this prayer and walk the aisle. I never walked the aisle, but I prayed that prayer every single Sunday for two years or however many years it was. But I think from 96 to 99, I prayed that sinner's prayer every single weekend, and I never walked the aisle because I was too proud. And during that time, as I would go to church, there was this feeling of sort of, I don't know, guilt, unworthiness, hoping that I'd done enough, hoping that when the score was even, that God would be okay with me. There was no certainty of salvation. I knew that this whole idea of doing the sacraments to earn grace, and if I did the sacraments and I earned grace, then I would be good. It put everything on me. And now I'm not even saying that this is what, I'm just telling you what I felt. 
And so then coming to Bible college, I didn't enter Bible college because I had any aspirations of going into the ministry. I started Bible college because I wanted to know what the Bible said. And I was drawn to it. And it wasn't until Bible college where certain doctrines were sort of presented to me to where I learned about the assurance of salvation. And we saw verses like this. For Christ also died singular for sins once and for all. When Jesus went to the cross and he died, that was it. I noticed going from the Catholic church to the Protestant church, that one of the things in my life that really stood out to me was the difference in how the crosses are presented between the Catholic and the, and the Protestant churches. Namely, that the, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the crucifix, but I just remember, like, there's no Jesus on our cross. And it kind of bothered me, like, kind of going, like, where's, did you guys, did he fall off? Like, I, I, I think the first couple of times I went to Protestant church, I thought literally that he just, like, fallen off, and he maybe got banged up, like, lost an arm or something, so they just kind of stripped it down to the, the cross. And then I realized, like, that it, there was something sort of bigger. And when I started asking Protestant, like, fine, like, hey, why is, there no, why is there no Jesus on the cross? Like, are you guys too cheap, or did you hurt him? Or, like, because it was like, I didn't, I didn't know. And their response was sort of like, no, that, well, Jesus isn't there anymore. He rose from the grave that his time on the cross. And I started theologically wrapping my brain around things that I, I can't even say I was taught. It was just like assumptions or what I believed were, were sort of challenged. And the scripture makes it very clear that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient. In theological terms, we call this, um, um, great, it's just uh, uh, substitutionary atonement. That his substitute, that he was a substitute for you, it was sufficient. He paid the cost, he paid it in full. For Christ also died for sins for once. When he died on Calvary some 2,000 years ago, before you were born, before your great-great-grandparents were even like around. Jesus knew who you were, who you would be, who all humanity was. All sins, past, present, future, that would ever be committed would be placed upon him once and for all. The just, that's Jesus, for you, the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The only reason we have any sort of relationship with God is because God reached out to us. God sought us. He, he won you over. If you're a Christian, it's because he was working overtime for me behind the scenes, trying to show the gospel to me that my stubborn, hardened heart would respond. And if you've never responded to God, I guarantee you that God is pursuing you. Because he desires to have a relationship with you. He is desiring to bring you to him. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this point in the the text is where things are going to get a little different. I'm going to open up a few cans of worms for us to wrestle over. I encourage you to do your study. What I would say about this and my aim of presenting sort of where I've landed and in a very sort of open-handed approach, I do believe that I'm, what I'm about to share is kind of what the scripture just says. Of course, everybody thinks that. So I understand that. Um, In seminary, this is one of those things where you would get groups of people arguing over like, what does it mean? And at the end of the argument where they ended up was, well, this is what I believe. This is what you believe. Let's move on. And so I, I, I'm just going to sort of present it. And I hope, I do believe that I can show us the main thing. And with that, let's dive in. Having been put to death, I believe, on the cross, when Jesus, at the moment, when the medical doctor would have declared him dead, his physical body ceased like we all die. Then Peter goes in 
And he talks about the spirit. In our lives, there's, there's the one line, what we can see, touch, feel, experience, but there's also the spirit realm that we don't really see, but we feel, we experience, we understand, but we don't see clearly. I, I love Frank Preddy's books. I think the reason why he's so good, this present in darkness, is because he takes his readers into this realm where the flesh and the spirit sort of are visible through the reading and the storytelling that he does. And so from this point, when I find my place, he had been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter now is talking on spiritual lines, lines that we don't see if God hadn't revealed this part of the story to us or to Peter or to any of the early church, it would remain unknown to them. And so during this, following this, dead in the flesh, alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now a few observations. So dead on the cross, we know Jesus would rise on the third day during this window of that three-day period while Jesus' body was in the tomb. His spirit was doing other things. We see that in which he went, he went somewhere. Where did he go? We're going to explore this. Where did he go? He went somewhere, and this somewhere, he made a proclamation to the spirits who are in, who are in prison. So he, he, he departed, he goes somewhere. In this location, there are spirits who are contained, they're, they're detained, they're in prison or hell, whatever uh, you, you want to think of it, but they're, they're contained. He went there and he made a proclamation from this and extra biblical sources. This is where sort of the doctrine of purgatory comes from. I I do want to say that nowhere in the Bible is purgatory mentioned, referenced from this verse. You cannot make a case that he's proclaiming an opportunity for the gospel for them to respond to this. This word proclaim is a Greek word called Caruso. This is not a word for proclaiming uh, the gospel in a, in a way that a person could respond to, to, to get themselves out of their present situation. Caruso is a herald, um, literally a like a, 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 like a newspaper headline. This is the headlines proclaiming a message to them. To the spirits now in prison. I did like Ben's response a lot when the text message at 10 o'clock at night. The one thing he says is like his short response. He's like, well, one thing I, I kind of think of this is like Jesus going to hell and basically, for lack of better terms, taunting all of them in his victory. And I'm like, I think that's pretty theologically accurate. I don't know if he's taunting, but it is finished. I have destroyed Satan. It doesn't matter what you do. Victory is mine, and I have won. So he makes his proclamation in prison. Now, who are these spirits? Where did he go? First off, what does Peter explain to us about the spirits? We see in verse 20, who once were disobedient. So there's this group of spirits. They once were disobedient. Um, When God's patience kept waiting in the days of Noah. So we go, ah, we have a little time reference. A timestamp. We know that back in Genesis, we know the story of Noah's Ark. We we know of the situation. So he says, these spirits are from that time. These spirits were disobedient. We know that the patience of God was tried. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the Ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Of all of humanity, they were the only ones that responded. The offer was open to whoever, but only eight of all humanity responded. That sin had grown so rampant. And it says that they were brought safely through the water. It's very interesting. I don't know if it's just me, but if you were to not tell me that you are talking or studying this passage, and you can turn to Genesis 6 while I keep talking... If you came and you asked me, say, hey, Gunnar, think about the story of Noah's Ark, okay? What saved Noah? My response would be the Ark saved Noah. I mean, uh, of course, God saved Noah. 
But let's throw God out of the picture. I mean, not throw God out of the picture, but let's move God aside. Maybe we should ask, how did God save Noah? I would have said the ark. But it's interesting through this and other places, the way that they thought or viewed it is that the water actually saved Noah because he built the ark and the ark is pointless with no water. But then the water came and saved them. It kept them afloat and washed everybody away. Okay, so here's can of worms number whatever we're on. Genesis 6. We're reviewing this with Anna last night. She's like, you're going to that passage? I'm like, well, it's right there. Remember, he talks about Noah, God's patience being tried during the time of Noah. God's patience grew, finally was so tested that he wiped out humanity. The story picks up in Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. And daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals and creeping, to creeping things and to birds on the, of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this story sort of unfolds. We get this, how, how did this anger of the Lord get kindled? As I sort of explain this, you can turn over to Second Peter 2.4. Uh, find your way over there. Second Peter comes right after First Peter. Hopefully you saved your spot. And in Second Peter 2.4. So during this time, there's some question. What? It was happening early on in Genesis 6. It seems to me that there's somehow angel, angelic beings who were in the form of humans... And they start having sexual relations with humans. And children from this angelic being and the humans start to basically um, unfold. There's, that seems to be what is happening there. There's obviously a variety of views and I don't know. But whatever was happening, the main thing is that whatever was happening was so vile and so bad that God's patience was so tried that our loving, patient God said, this is enough. And Noah and his seven family members ultimately are spared and all of humanity is wiped out. Finally, God, after doing that, he gives us a sign of the rainbow saying that there'd be no universal flood following that ever since. Going to Second Peter 2, 4, which I ask you to turn to, there's some further explaining. So in Second Peter 2, 4, we read this. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And he goes into Sodom and Gomorrah and other examples. So Peter says during this time, he did not spare the angels. He did not spare these people. Um, when they sinned, he cast them into hell and committed them in the parts of desert, uh, the, the, the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So he describes that there's this, there's this, this holding tank, uh, hell, where those who have rejected God are, are awaiting final judgment, the lake of fire that Revelation speaks of. If you turn with me to right before Revelation, there's a very small book, Jude. There's only one chapter. And so in Jude 6, there's a little bit more insight, and then we'll be done with this count of worms. You guys can go study this on your own. 
And in Jude 6, this is what we read, Jude chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, I think this is kind of going back to Genesis 6, angels not supposed to be looking like humans on earth, they left their domain, but abandoned, abandoned their proper abode. He, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So here's the same idea of the angels. Going back to Second Peter, and we'll try to make sense of all of this. Clear as mud so far, I'm sure. So Peter writes, First Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. So there's this picture. Jesus died unjust suffering. He died. At that point, his spirit goes... I don't think he says hell here. I want to... But the idea that he goes to hell, he makes his proclamation, declares his victory. The, the big picture that we need to see, I believe, as we read this in context, we have followers of Christ that are experiencing excruciating, horrific persecution for their proclamation that Jesus is Lord. They would give their lives. They would be tortured. They would be burned at the stake. They would be cast to the lions. And I believe what Peter, the point he is making as he calls them to submit themselves to God in these various institutions from the authorities to your workplace to your marriages, as you turn from evil and you do good and persecution may come to you for living righteously, he points to Jesus and he reminds us that Jesus going to the cross didn't go to the cross because he was weak because he was feeble, because he was unable. He didn't have his life taken. He gave his life for us to, that, that we might have life with him. See, see, to be merciful, you have to have power. If you have no power, if you have no authority, there's no room to demonstrate mercy. My children cannot demonstrate mercy to me because I am over them. I, however, have great power and great authority over my children, and I can display mercy to them. God is the one who's all-powerful, sovereign, Lord over all. The point that Peter is making here, even in the realms of hell to all of these spirit beings that have rejected God, that after the cross he went and he proclaimed victory to them. And so we as, we, as we come to know Christ and know that he's demonstrated his mercy to us, his kindness to us, that we would come to know him, that as we suffer, we have a great God. Our suffering did not escape his. He didn't fall asleep at the wheel. He didn't, I didn't see that coming. When I was calculating, I just didn't see that, that my believers in northern Iraq would be beheaded for their faith in me. I didn't see that coming. What Peter wants us to see is that whatever suffering we're going through, that God is greater than the suffering that we're enduring. And whatever we're going through, if we're suffering for righteousness, God has a greater plan. And he's doing something through it. And we can trust him. We can have hope in the midst of the suffering. And then th through talking about the storm, in verse 21, he says, corresponding to that, Corresponding to what? Corresponding to the flood. Peter then begins to talk about baptism. And he says, baptism now saves you. If we were to stop right here, we would have a, a, a terrible misunderstanding of what this is saying. We, um, one thing I've noticed about cults, those who distort the word of God, they always use the word of God. They always use the word of God and they always use it out of context. I could tell you, I could stand here and I could say, God says that he'll save you through baptism. First Peter three, twenty-one, 
and I would absolutely be telling the truth because God's word says that God will save you through baptism, right? We totally ignored the context, the surrounding verses. What is it really saying? And there are those that, that, that do that. I was told as a child that I was good with God, that I was saved because I was baptized as a child. I have a picture of my childhood baptism. And so I went through my life and when I was, it almost hindered my coming to Christ because as I was rebelling against God and having moments of conviction and guilt, praying the sinner's prayer every Sunday, I always rejected being baptized again because I knew that I was good with God because I was baptized as a kid. But man, I was so riddled with like guilt and shame and uncertainty. And see, look what, look, look what he says here. He doesn't stop. He, he explains this. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about water baptism. The scriptures mention five baptisms. Did you know that? It took me to go to seminary, so I'm giving you guys the little cheater course. The five baptisms mentioned in, this, in the New Testament or the, the first one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance, that he was making way for the Messiah, that people were to repent of their sins, to be baptized, to prepare their hearts for him. Then Christ was baptized. Jesus' bath, baptism stands alone. Jesus had no sin. He had no need to be baptized out of repentance. His was unique to him alone. There's water baptism, which we think of as baptism. This is where you're dunked underwater, baptizo. You're going underwater, and then you come up. Uh, Baptism is a symbol, like my wedding ring. If I take off my wedding ring, still married. Larry's heard me say this before. It's a symbol. It, it, It signifies something more significant. So water baptism actually is a symbol of spirit baptism. Now, spirit baptism is when you believe you're placed into the body of Christ. If you would look with, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read Ephesians 1.13 and 14 to you. Ephesians 1.13 and 14 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed, that's baptism, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So there Paul writes that after hearing the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day. After hearing that message, if you're a Christian, that means that you have believed. That moment that you believed, the spirit comes upon you, you're dwelt, you don't feel it, you don't experience it, or maybe some people do, I never did. I learned about it years later. But then I was told that the spirit now dwells within me because I believe. It's sealed for the day of redemption. There's assurance. There's hope. Everything pointing to Jesus, not my own works. I'll never forget when I learned about this in Bible college. See, I, was, I, was, I had started Bible college and I was still every week not walking the aisle, but becoming a Christian every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, I would sit there and say the sinner's prayer because I knew how I'd live during the week. And so I needed to redo it every week. And I came into Bible college class one day, and I'll never forget, and it was an older professor, and he had two circles up on the the chalkboard. And in the one circle, he had written Adam, I think it was Romans 5:12 underneath, and on the other circle he'd he'd put Christ, in Christ, and he, some verse from Ephesians. I forget what it was. And as he began to talk to us, he walked over the chalkboard and he drew a line from Adam into Christ with an arrow, and he placed he wrote up First Corinthians. I can still hear the chalkboard squeaking, literally the dust coming up. And he said, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which I'll ask you to do. And so over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
he read this verse to us. And he said, reading from the scripture, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so it was this picture that this is what baptism is. When you believe in Christ, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Some people claim to have experiences. Other of us, I have no experience. I mean, I've seen evidence of it in my life. I felt the conviction. I learned about it years later. But in that moment, in that class, seeing that moving from Adam into Christ, it was like this weight was lifted off of me. It was my aha moment that, no, when Jesus died on the cross, it was once and for all. Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear. There we read, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. See, when you die, if you die apart from Christ, there's no second chances. And in this life, once you believe, you believe. You're sealed by the Spirit. And this is what, going back to First Peter, sorry, I didn't tell you to go back there. And before, while you turn back to fifth baptism, which I'm not going to talk about, is a baptism of fire. We see through the New Testament that we see trials, tribulations, suffering that happens to the Christian is this baptism of fire. It's the refining act that God uses to shape us, to mold us into his image. Good times are great, but I, I think we all learn and draw closer to God through difficulty. Suffering is a huge blessing to us. And so looking at this passage, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, it's right there. It's through Jesus Christ. It's through him that baptism saves you. It's a spirit baptism. You're saved by grace through faith. When you exercise faith at that moment, you're baptized in the spirit. I love what John MacArthur wrote on this verse. Gives me goosebumps. He said, Peter here uses baptism to refer to a figurative immersion into Christ as the ark of safety that will sail over the Holocaust of judgment on the wicked. Going through Romans, we spent a year going through Romans, probably more than a year going through Romans, but one of the main thrusts of Romans was that in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're safe. You're secure, you're saved. And we think saved from our sins, but what we're saved from is the wrath of God that is coming. And Peter knows this, that in Christ, you're safe. And I love this good conscience. When I came to understand that I wasn't trying to work my way into salvation with God, I wasn't going week to week, tallying up the good and the bad because when you read the New Testament, see, we so quickly, we're so quick to say, oh, the Old Testament had all its rules and the New Testament is just filled with love and grace and kindness and forgiveness. It's just wonderful. I don't know what New Testament those people are right reading. When I read the New Testament, I see phrases like Jesus saying, you know, I tell you in the Old Testament, it says that if you committed adultery, this was wrong. But I tell you, if you look, with lust upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ah. Is that harder or easier? That's harder. He says, I tell you the truth. The Old Testament said if you commit murder, if you killed somebody, you committed murder. But I tell you, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. I'm probably hacking it to death, like horribly. And so Peter understood this, and he recognizes that when... You trust Christ for salvation. You recognize that what Jesus did for you was totally, completely paid for. I can't tell you the weight that was lifted off of me when I came to understand that salvation was a gift, that it was secure, 
that I was sealed in the spirit for the day of redemption and that my choosing to live righteously had nothing to do with my earning salvation. It was my conscience was clear. And the longer I've walked with Christ now, when I sin, because I'm still sin, I still have my sin nature within me, but my conscience is so much more sensitive to the spirit that when I sin, I want it to be clear. And so I'm quick to confess, to thank him for paying for that, to change this within me. And I love the friend of mine who said that, uh, talking with his friend that said he's dealt with the big sins, but now he's found the longer that he's been a Christian that the little sins have become big sins to him. But our conscience is clear. And where we'll end, in verse 22, following in through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Where does the movement of all of this passage go? Yeah, it gets a little weird in those first three verses. I mean, weird. It's not hard. It it makes perfect sense. But from our logical Western brains that just don't want to deal with the, the spiritual realm, we think this is just foolishness. But if you look at the outside and you... You see, for Christ died for the sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, moving down, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and after authorities and power subjected to him. Who is Christ? He is Lord over all. He is creator and sustainer. We have breath. We have life. We have this day because he gave it to us. When he died, he conquered sin. He paid for it. The victory is won. He went down to the spirit world and he proclaimed his victory. He then ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the father. He's no longer on the cross. And so how would this fit into unjust suffering? Well, I tell you, if I'm unjust suffering, which I as American cannot say that I am suffering unjustly. I, what we are going through, we have nothing like, But to my brothers and sisters who find themselves in northern Iraq, find themselves in Africa, find themselves wherever, where their following Christ results in imprisonment, death, beatings. And I read this passage, the hope that bubbles up from this, that Christ is over all. He's greater than anything that I'm going through. And where he leads us to is therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also at the same purpose. Get on mission with him. The fruit of the spirit says to get in step with the spirit. It's this call to follow him regardless of the cost. So as we close, I would ask you, do you know who Jesus is? Like, what have you done with Jesus? Are you... Are you like me, like years ago, hoping that because you came to church, hoping because you prayed a prayer or or continuing to pray a prayer? Like like my my heart is to those who, who are Christians, but they have no assurance that you would know that Christ paid the penalty that your sin required. And you're sealed in the spirit if you've believed upon Christ for salvation. If you've never trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to do your homework, to research. The evidence is overwhelming. We can never do it. We can never cross the bridge of faith. Like it always requires faith. But for those of us who believe, my prayer is that we would truly set Christ in our hearts as Lord, that we would sanctify him in our hearts as Lord, that our hope in him would rise above anything that we're going through, good times, bad times, anything. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that this passage reveals to us. We thank you that we have hope knowing that Christ dying on the cross was sufficient, that it was once and for all, it was sufficient for my sins. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to overcome the insecurity we have. Lord, in a spiritual warfare, Lord, of dealing with 
uh, our past sins, what we've done is wrong. Lord, that you would guard our hearts from uh, standing condemned, for we know that the accuser is standing before you, condemning us day by day, moment by moment. And so, Lord, we cling to the truth that it's your death, your dying, your resurrection, your power that saves us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk with you faithfully all the days of our life. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.